Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Father, welcome to the War Room. Great to be with you. Thanks. Okay, so um, let's. Why, why this book now? The economics of the parables. Well, you know, it's been in my head for for many years. Uh, obviously, I'm a preacher, and so I've preached on the parables many, many times. And I've also been working in the field of economics, uh, promoting a, a good understanding of what the economy is, uh, and. I've been collecting notes over all these years. And when COVID hit, I finally sat down and uh, chose 13 of the parables and produced this book. Uh, numerous um, interviewers and commentators have said, where has this book always been? Because there's really not anything that's done this kind of integration that I'm aware of. Okay. And so for maybe our non-Christian listeners, what is a parable? Sure. So a parable is it doesn't necessarily pertain to Jesus because there's a whole history of parabolic teaching. These are usually uh, stories that carry meaning that have something to do with one's real life. So it's not like a fable. It's not fantasy. Uh, it's not just didactic. It's a story that situates uh, some truths. In the case of Jesus, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. But he's using uh, circumstances from real life. And it's unavoidable that when you're doing that, that you're going to touch on economic questions. Because if you're talking about building a house or hiring workers or negotiating contracts, all of these have to do with the economic dimension of human life. And that's part of the, uh, the thing I want to emphasize is that there's something in our economic reality that speaks to us of moral concerns and a more trans transcendent reality. Where did Jesus get his economics from? I'm not sure I would describe it that way. I, I don't think Jesus has economics. I don't think that certainly it's not the purpose of the parables, uh, but just his common knowledge um, of human beings and their circumstances. What I'm trying to say here is that there are economic presuppositions that are going on. Economics as an intellectual discipline, as an academic discipline, doesn't come for many centuries later. Uh, so that's what I find so interesting about this, is that here are economic truths before there's uh, what we know as scientific economics. Okay. And so um, a lot of times Jesus is talking, he'll be pulling from the Old Testament. So is, is that part of the background? for some of your work that you think that he's referencing, or is it kind of a new thought uh, that he's bringing to the table? Well, it's not so much exegeting or preaching from the Old Testament. It's examples of common life. Very often the, the parables will begin with, uh, uh, and there was a, a man, and uh, the kingdom of God may be likened to a man who's plowing a field, uh, or a man, a merchant, who finds a great treasure in a field. So it's not so much that he's going back to the Old Testament. He does that elsewhere uh, in the accounts of the Gospels. But parables specifically are these stories 
that um, point to a higher reality? I know some commentators, um, perhaps maybe Indy Wright, maybe one, that, that think that a lot of the parables have to do primarily with the nation of Israel. Is that kind of, is that in mind or is it more individualistic, you think? There's certainly a, a lot of the backdrop to the parables. It depends on which parable. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly helps. Uh, Wright, of course, is one of the great biblical scholars of our age. Um, it certainly helps to have that backdrop. It helps to have some linguistic or cultural uh, understanding or the audience that he's speaking to can inform us as to what Jesus is trying to get get at in the parables. So all of that plays into it. And what I try to do here in a non-scholarly way, but I, I hope that it's uh, uh, solid, uh, is uh, bring out these linguistic or cultural points to show these economic presuppositions but to do it in a non-ideological way. So I'm not trying to, and pardon me now for using technical language, I'm not trying to eisegete, that is, put something into the text. I'm trying to exegete, to pull something out of the text. Okay, and so what? who is he speaking to? What is the feel, the people, the culture that Jesus is addressing? It depends on the parable. Mm. Uh, There's a parable, one of the most famous parables, of course, is the parable of the the prodigal son. And that whole parable is kind of um, provoked by a circumstance where a woman comes uh, into a gathering, uh, um, kind of prestigious gathering. Jesus has been invited to a dinner and she begins to weep at his feet and she's a sinner and people are quite offended that he's even letting her touch his feet and bathe his feet with this expensive oil and that becomes the launching pad for the story of the prodigal son so it's you know uh, the love of the father that you see in the prodigal son and in that story of the prodigal son there are a lot of economic presuppositions operative there uh, about inheritance about property about restoration of property about envy the envy of the older son who is marginal and um, so that is his particular uh, audience in that circumstance. Another one is the the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, that that is a very broad application because um, everybody thinks somebody else is rich, not us. But of course, we're we're really the rich person who uh, ignores human vulnerability. And it's it's interesting in that particular parable to see the. Uh, and this happens many times, the reversal of uh, roles that takes place because the rich man ends up in hell and the poor man, Lazarus, ends up in the bosom of Abraham. It's also interesting that Lazarus is named in that story, whereas the rich man is doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. Uh, tradition gives him the name. It's usually the rich who have the name, you know, their names on buildings and things like this. So Jesus very subtly turns the whole thing on its head. Um, and you see the um, the rich man still trying to give Lazarus orders. Well, send him to my brothers so that they don't end up in this position. And uh, it's very intriguing when you just kind of let yourself sink into the, the world of the parable and you can discern uh, real subtle truths that emerge from it. Yeah, let's go back to the the prodigal son. Um, yes, 
because one of the striking things about the prodigal son is is that the prodigal son goes and he's with the swine right yes so you have this very feel of uncleanliness that's there uh and then when he comes back he's welcomed without being rebuked for for um that because there's a sense of, of repentance in the story um but but you you're pushing on the 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 other things you said there's there's land there's a lot of stuff tied up to it how do we, or how do you maybe help, help us understand? How do you go through and say, okay, is it the pigs and the swine? Is it the father son? Is it the brother relationship? How, is it multiple things? Do you rank it's, them? Like, how, how do it, you unpack these? It's certainly all of that. You know, I mean, that's going on because there's this, this rich tapestry of symbol mm. that is used. The, the swine is an example, especially uh, in a Jewish culture, that this young man is so closely associated with these unclean animals and and even if swine themselves weren't unclean according to the mosaic law he's still in their slop and eating their food so there's a real emphasis on the uncleanliness uh, and that starts right out from the parable because it says that the 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 prodigal son the one we will call the prodigal son asks that his inheritance be divided even before the father is dead so this is offensive right off the bat. And yet the father does it. Now, when you juxtapose that son who's gone and dissipated later on in the story, we hear that he's dissipated uh, the inheritance with um, with women prostitutes. Uh, and then the, the son who stays home, who will only meet toward the end of the, the story, is resentful of this. What you come to realize is that this really isn't the main player in this story isn't the prodigal son, even though we call it the prodigal son. It's the father. He's the hinge between these two sons, both of whom are alienated from him in, one, in different ways, and both of whom are overly concerned about their inheritance. The prodigal son, because he takes the early inheritance, but the older son, who is outside, he's pictured outside the ballroom where the, the return party is, is going on, uh, he's outside, but he's concerned that he's never been able to have even a little calf mm. uh, to share with his friends. And the father says to him, look, everything I have is yours, uh, but your son, my, your son, your brother was dead and is now alive. Come in to the feast. This is, by the way, another uh, part of the parables, or many of the parables anyway, is, is the ambiguity associated with them. Mm. You know, in a typical church setting in a congregation, uh, and I'm sure regardless of denomination, any pastor, any preacher has heard this before. I don't get this point in this parable. I don't like it. You know, uh, it may be the prodigal son, uh, but there's an ambiguity in it. And I think that's what drives us to think through all of the implications and why these stories have been so um, enduring in time. I mean, we're talking about stories that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. Uh, I mean, uh, if somebody comes to me a year later and says, oh, I remember that homily that you preached, I feel lucky. <laughs> you know, you're like, what did I do? Let me go back to that homily. <laughs> there must be some secret formula, formula mm -hmm. in there. But there's just something um, enduring about these stories. There is, and it, it reminds me, um, you know, I, I think maybe for the listeners who, um, you know, are kind of maybe hearing some of this for the first time, 
I would almost argue that if you go back to the Old Testament and read, you take a story, you know, um, oh, let me pick one here. Um, Genesis where um, Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah. And then you have this whole chapter of all the kids that are born. And when you read that, it is, you can read it. I mean, I read one commentator who goes, I read it face value. Therefore, it all happened like this because he didn't know what to do with it. I've read other commentators who are trying to unparse it, and maybe it's all happened concurrently. It's, it's being, but it's told weird. Um, when you get to the, the old parts of the Old Testament, especially, I think are there to train us that that these texts are extremely complex, and they're not they're not wooden in the sense of they're flat. And one of the problems I think that that has emerged in Protestantism, Protestantism is these single meaning texts mentality. Um, and so Proof texting. Proof texting. Yeah, proof texting. Um, uh, but but also the concept that, that that the text only has one meaning. And so when you get to, you go back and you kind of look through the, the lineage of, of the scriptures uh, and you get to where we're at with this story with Jesus and you think about the prodigal son, well, um, there's several things there. First off, you can think of, um, you know, there is pretty much a Israel Gentile aspect to it, right? Yeah. That's one of those parables where you you have the, right. you know, the, the but, but there's also there's also the the real familial relationship of a father with his two children. One child goes away, another child feels scorned. Uh, right. You mentioned churchgoers. There's probably a feel to where the new con- new converts kind of get the attention of the pastor, where the guys who have been there forever kind of get left. I mean, there's there's a lot of different exactly. angles to take this, and so I think that. We agree there. So my question to you is, how far can we push this into, um, okay, hey, so when a son asks a dad to divide his inheritance early, the son's responsible to do that. Can, can we push it that far from something like this? Or, Well, that's, that's where the backdrop is so important. Uh, the study of, for instance, uh, what were the economic uh, norms of inheritance at that particular time that can inform us you know saint augustine one of the great early biblical scholars of the church in the fourth century uh, spoke of the um uh symbolic meaning of the scriptures the allegorical meaning of the scriptures and the literal meaning so i think what you do is you you start reading them and just read them for the uh the literal story the basic contours a little story but then as you delve into it, you, you begin to see some symbolic uh, and maybe even theological prophetic things. The, the other thing I would caution, especially with regard to the parables, is not to be too dogmatic about their meaning, unless it's very clear in a given parable. So to leave it open-ended, leave it a little bit ambiguous, because you, you find if you don't close your mind uh, immediately and say, well, this is the meaning of it, uh, you may find other meanings to it or other applications. What I'm trying to do here is just go into one dimension, this economic dimension, without neglecting and, and uh, without um, failing to acknowledge these other dimensions that are so important. Yeah, no, you 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 <laughs> you have to. It's kind of like a both and, right? And so, right. Uh, when you examine these texts on some level, you almost have to try to take this sliver and examine that in context of, uh, of what that story is. And then you can draw back out and say, well, how does, you know, where, as you mentioned a minute ago, where is this parable in relationship to, you know, who was addressing Jesus? And then how many times have people like that addressed him in detailed parables? Like you can get, you can go 
really far. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then you can also compare. Sometimes the parables are repeated, mm -hmm. especially in the synoptic gospels. Those are the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're, they're, they're said to be synoptic because they're written from a very similar uh, perspective. The John, the gospel of John is a very different literary piece of work, linguistic piece of work, and a later piece of, of work. But when you get these stories that are told and retold, like the, for instance, the, um, the story of the talents, you have two versions of that. And one has uh, the servants being given, uh, was it one, uh, five and 10 mm -hmm. talents or one, two and 10. And then the other, they're given an equal distribution of them. Uh, and there's certain emphasis, yet a similarity. Uh, and you wonder, are these two independent stories or is there enough similarity in them that, right. you know, it's it's a really rich field. The, the, the study of the parables themselves, there are scholars who have spent their entire life just uh, commenting on one parable. You mentioned the parable of talents. Let's let's talk about yes. that one for a second. I mean, that's that an is, obvious one, isn't it? <laughs> that's an obvious one that would that would fit into this. Economic. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's one five and ten. Off the top of my head, it could be one two and ten. But anyways, it's it's the. Um, yeah. I use the Matthew one. Yeah, uh, yeah, different yeah. distributions. Um, they all get this, they they're paid a certain way, um, and then they're punished a certain way. There, there's a whole so so un, maybe unpack the story at a high level here, and then what are the things that you're drawing from that one? Okay, so the, the basic story is this Lord, this master goes on a journey and he entrusts his uh, money to these three servants uh, at different levels, uh, one, two, and uh, ten. And he goes off and then he comes back and the one with the ten, is it ten or five? Now I'm confusing the, with the other parable. Uh, the one with the most has doubled his money the one with the median amount has doubled the money and the one with the least amount, the one hides the money, hides his talents, as we've heard, by the way, the word talent is an economic unit in the ancient world. We've, we use that now to mean, you know, the gifts that we, we yeah, have skills, as yeah. human beings. So skills. Uh, but it's interesting. There are a lot of these examples of linguistic uh, or metaphors that are lifted from the Gospels that are applied that people don't even realize they come from the Gospels. Uh, so this one uh, just has one. Uh, and then he rewards the ones who have doubled the money and condemns the one who just return the money. This is, by the way, uh, an example of one of these things, one of these parables where people are uncomfortable. You say, what, why did they, con why did Jesus condemn this guy? He, he just preserved the money that was given to him. And I think that's the, um, that's where you get into, well, what, what's really going on here? Because the whole story starts with the master, the Lord, giving the talents to each according to his ability. So that's the whole setup. The master knew who he was giving the money to and knew what their abilities were in order to do it, uh, in order to be entrusted with it. So when he comes back and condemns this last one, because uh, that's really the, the interesting part of the story, it's not because this guy couldn't do it. In fact, this guy tells you what his attitude toward the master is. And he begins by saying, I knew that you were a cruel man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. I was afraid. 
So it's this fear of the master and this mischaracterization of the master who is the benefactor. And it really, in that sense, it begs to be compared to a kind of Marxian or socialist uh, economic view that sees uh, any form of wealth as uh, exploitation, as uh, illegitimate, uh, gathering where you have not scattered, exploitative. Uh, I'm not saying that the, this servant was a Marxist, but I'm saying it's the mentality uh, of envy or fear. And that's the other thing. They're not, they're not, this man is not trusting that the master knew who he was giving his money to. And so this caution, this also plays into the whole role of economics, because if you talk to any business person who's made any kind of success uh, out of their entrepreneurship, they immediately will tell you that one of the characteristics that's essential to succeed is the ability to tolerate risk. And this man could not tolerate risk. So he hides the money, uh, which is a legitimate way of preserving it, but it doesn't increase it. And so uh, these are some of the economic themes that emerge out of, of that particular parable. Yeah. So some might hear this and go, well, um, are we then to, you know, how much risk do we take and how do we evaluate that based upon what you're saying here? Right. Well, of course, he knows the man he's entrusting it to. And, and that brings us to a question of prudence and, uh, you know, other parables and other teachings in the scriptures tell us that we have to be balanced, you know, that, that the risk that an entrepreneur takes, sometimes great risk, uh, has to be predicated on uh, a knowledge of what they're doing. It, it involves the virtue of courage, uh, and courage is not irresponsible. It, it's the the prudent uh, response to a given circumstance and a uh, opportunity in a person's life. How do you read a story like the prodigal son or the parable of talents fresh over and over again? Um, well, I think sometimes just leaving it for a while and then coming back. I think the commentators, I mean, what was very rich for me in this experience was um, getting out the the commentators who have uh, and and uh, if you look in the bibliography uh, of the the my book uh, i have a very diverse group of commentators i have very progressive commentators some of whom barely believe jesus existed barely believed he really we have any records of anything he really said i have uh, jewish commentators there are Jewish commentators who are experts on the New Testament, <laughs> yeah. and they they very often bring very interesting uh, insights because Christians immediately read the parables from the view of the church. But when you read them as a Jew, uh, because Jesus was a Jew, he was speaking largely to a Jewish audience, you get a whole different uh, perspective. So I think reading the commentators on it and also not just attacking it like an academic paper, but letting letting um, it seep in, mulling mulling through it, meditating uh, uh, on it can help as well. I, one of the the nicer, more encouraging comments that I've had about the book was that it was very meditative. That you could read this book uh, in a meditative way, and I suppose that was the circumstance in which I was writing it, you know, in the middle of COVID, I was relatively isolated from a lot of people. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I could really just sit and mull over the scriptures and think about them. 
Now, with that being said, you, you've touched on kind of this this idea that in the parable of the talents, um, there's a pushback on maybe a socialistic mindset or Marxist mindset, which formalized, we know from history, the formal Marxist ideology hasn't come around because Marx right. hasn't lived. But it, people, but humans throughout history have had various ways of thinking about things, whether they formalized them properly or not. Right. What would have been the system under which Jesus and the, the, the Jews and the Romans, what, what kind of system, if we were to try to put a title to it, would it have been for that time period? Well, there were several. Remember, it's, uh, Jerusalem is a colony of Rome at this time. So you have the Roman law. But within that, uh, in a very practical way, the, the whole Jewish uh, law and society also operated uh, within that sphere. So you have almost two different economic systems, a high tax system, and then another system which also involves forms of taxation, but differing forms of property rights uh, and things like that. So that complexifies um, what's going on. Uh, the Probably the last third of the book is a broader view of economics in the New Testament. It's not just strictly the parables. And in that context, I write about other instances like the um, the, the Acts of the Apostles, where the church is sharing their wealth. Mark mm -hmm. said about that, that this was primitive communism. Mm -hmm. uh, or the, the story of the uh, overturning of the money changers in the temple. Uh, that's very complex in terms of this, these two cultures, these two legal systems, economic systems meeting each other, the Jewish temple system and the Roman colonial system. Uh, and the, the whole reason for the changing of the money in the temple was precisely because the Jews who would come to the temple to purchase um, animals for sacrifice would bring Roman coinage or even other pagan coinage with them, and that had gods on it. They'd have to change that money in order for it to be pure to use the currency of the temple. Mm -hmm. And then that currency would be, that's why you had the money changers. Yeah. And then there's a the whole question of, well, what, what's going on there? Uh, maybe they're, they're um, inflating the exchange rate, which anybody knows uh, traveling uh, in Europe, you know, you, you want to be careful what the cambio is, is really going to be. Um, well, so and, and that goes back to why I was asking earlier, um, your thoughts about Jesus's view of the law as he's talking through these parables, because I, I would think, um, that if you look at Genesis, it's a pre-law, at least formalized law text. Um, they do respond to things like Onan that's, that seems that they have some knowledge of the, of the law, but it's, it's at least pre-formalized from our perspective. Um, and then Jesus is, is post-formalized. Um, and so, and then obviously a lot of, a lot of other stuff's happened since then. But on both sides of that, of that um, giving of the Mosaic law, you have these stories, whether it's a parable or it's a story like Dinah, um, that you're that you're you're sitting there, you're trying to examine like where are they drawing and deducing these these morals from, and, yeah. and it becomes quite quite hard if you take for me at least to take it in isolation and say, well, you know, this story in isolation is is trying to tell you this without trying to to figure out how they know with how the characters. I mean, I think they're real people, obviously, but how the characters in the story understand what they understand because to your point, they they have understanding. <laughs> 
you know, they, they don't have iPhones. They had different understanding of what's going on and they have all this history just like we do as well. And so sure. it makes it very comp complex. No, I, I think that's exactly the point is that what we have to do is drop our preconditions, our presuppositions, and really try to enter the story on its own terms. Uh, now, you may be able to draw analogies out of that or discover things that wouldn't be obvious and applications that we would make today in, in the age of iPhones, you know, uh, mm. how does that relate? But I think we have to approach the text with its own integrity, with, it, with a, an awareness of these people and these stories have certain meanings in and of themselves and to begin there. Uh, yeah. That's what I think a true student does. What was your favorite parable to, to cover? Oh, that's, you know, are you married? Married with four kids. Which is your favorite kid? Allocate. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, it's, you, well, you know, you, you know, it's, it's a thing. I, I like the prodigal son. Yeah, I, I, I just think that's so charming. The other one that really moves me is the, the, the shortest one. I don't know. And it, it always has moved me. And it's the story of the pearl of great price to come upon something that you're willing to give your life for. And it's, it's the shortest parable. It's, it's one sentence, one verse. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when you find something that is the whole meaning of your existence, I mean, uh, it's more than economic. It's, it's this man is willing to surrender everything else. I mean, that's what life is. If it, one preacher once said, if you, if you have not discovered something you're willing to die for, you have not yet discovered what you want to live for. Mm. And, and I think that parable is probably the most emotional for me. Mm. What would you say to someone who's, um, there's plenty of people now who historically have read Jesus's teachings as um, socialist or Marxist, um, especially since those people have been alive and written their books. What would you say to someone who goes, no, 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 you're, you're, you are actually engaging in Jesus. You're, this is quite clear. Look at him and the benevolence and the love and, and all, you know, what would you say to those kind of accusations? Well, the, the first I would say is read the book. <laughs> you know, I challenge you to find no one, none of the commentators so far, the reviewers so far have accused me of eisegesis. Mm. And I, I do handle several versions or several examples of eisegesis in it. Uh, where socialistly inclined uh, readers have made the case. Um, I think it's very difficult uh, to do that with the Gospels. But more, more significantly um, and more tellingly was the way you described the debate. Jesus is benevolent and he's sharing and he's kind and he's loving. Why is that socialist? Mm. Why do we think that sharing other people's money makes you a better person? Uh, the, the radical nature of the gospel isn't that it calls upon us to share other people's money, but to share our own and to inspire us, not to coerce us. This is the story of the prodigal son, another very beautiful part of it. Very often that is held up as an example of the model of the welfare state. And yet the entirety of that story is this man 
willing to involve himself in the life of another broken human being and pay for it using his own beast, his own clothes, his own wine to disinfect the room, his own money, his own contacts to put him in the hotel and have him taken care of and commit himself to his future well-being when he returns on the journey. How is that socialist? This is personal. It's, it's proximate. You know, it's close. It's not distant and bureaucratic and political. Yeah, and, and so there's an ethical argument there, right, which is um, use the term coercion. Um, and so essentially, that's, I think, the onus around this debate around capitalism versus socialism and um, you know where those lines are drawn is if we agree that the government has certain rights to, to do certain things, um, then it's not, assume they're doing it the right way, it's not coercion for them to do it, but if they don't have the right to do it. Um, then it becomes coercion, which is wrong. Yeah. And so, um, you said to your point about being benevolent and loving, it, it, that I use those terms on purpose, on purpose no, because no, that's, I, that's how they frame the argument. And, and I, so knew, like, I knew what you were doing. It's, and, it's like, well, yeah, how, how do you get to lay claim? Who gets to lay claim to these terms? And um, studying something like the parables from an economic standpoint or, uh, or any of the gospels for that matter it is quite important during these times. And so you mentioned reading progressive commentators. And so I have, uh, um, read some progressive commentators and some, you know, atheists who commentate on the Bible, which I find, yeah. I find interesting because it's like, <laughs> I'm not writing commentaries on books. I don't, you know, I'm just not my, not, not my cup of tea, but okay. Um, you know, I'm looking at Robert Alter right here on my right. And, you know, I find some of his comments to be very insightful and some of them to be way off the mark. Yeah. How, but, 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 but they can be very insightful because sometimes I find that those commentators are afraid to, or not afraid to say the things that maybe a more conservative commentator is, the problem becomes getting too hyped up into that mentality. And you think that everything a progressive or a non-believing commentator might say is actually the thing that we're all afraid to say. So therefore, you right. follow how do you, when you read those for people, because they're going to read your book and read the, the footnotes, what advice would you give us to reading those commentators? Uh, I would say, first of all, be prepared to read them. I mean, have some background in it. Don't and don't steep yourself too much in any one perspective. I mean, read broadly. Uh, I think that's where it, it's a sense of balance. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once said that heresy is truth gone mad. Mm. Uh, it's not just an error. It's a truth that you think is the only truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's refreshing to me to read commentators uh, whose works the majority of which I wouldn't agree with, mm -hmm. but sometimes they have an insight that precisely comes out of um, not being, you know, encapsulated uh, in in the church and in, in the tradition, and they can have some real brilliant insights uh, at times that I think ultimately, as a believer, reinforces the gospel. By the way, if if I can just interject this contemporary observation. This is what is sadly lacking in our society right now. Everybody is retreated to their bunkers and they're just throwing lobbying insults and talking points outside of their bunkers. Uh, I come from a, a, a tradition, you know, um, an experience where different ideas got to be expressed and then you were expected to reasonably debate them. And I lament mm -hmm. the lack of that in the general uh, culture that we're living in right now uh, no and, and that's you know i'm a protestant 
you're a Catholic. That's yeah. but that, but but part of the show is we bring on people from all sorts of backgrounds yeah. and try to have a respectable uh, conversation that hopefully listeners can can find value in. And 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 even you know people I have vast disagreements with. I've got some recorded that that will be coming out that they're very amicable. We could you know, we could conversate. We could hear and sure. try to ask questions that that are understanding and probing. And um and you know just circle back to one thing you said. Um just to final thought on this is uh, I was reading uh, Peter Inns one time and he had some comments and and some of the points he was making were striking about uh, chronologies and you know and, and all, all this stuff um, I was like oh wow this is this is really good stuff and then you talk about be kind of encapsulated well because he's kind of got a certain perspective he he tripled and doubled down and he went too far right. but, w- but what he did was he actually sharpened a more traditional understanding yes because in his view to dismantle it, he had to go too far. Uh, and the critique that he made was like, oh, let me let me think about this. This is a good critique. Let me think about this. You went too far here, but by going too far, you've actually clarified how exactly. to solve the problem that you say. And so it's, it, if you can do it, if you, I'm not saying I'm a master by any level, but but if you can read them, read them rightly, they can sure. offer a lot of good wisdom. Look at N.T. Wright. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't just know a very narrow tradition on the resurrection, right. for instance. He's read the entire scope of it, and as a result of that, has been able to marshal an argument for the resurrection of Christ that is so powerful precisely because he's read the criticisms and anticipates what the objections would be. I think he's read all the criticisms, and he's written <laughs> a book about all of them. Sure, sure. And that's exciting to me. I mean, I grew up, you know, watching Bill Buckley, you Mm -hmm. know, debate Norm Chomsky and Mm -hmm. Jesse Jackson. And Mm -hmm. I I look for those kinds of encounters and you just don't find them. We have a sustained hour of disagreement and a few barbs here and there. Okay, that's fine. You just kind of, I'm from Brooklyn, so I'm used to that. (laughs) Uh, But now, you know, you've got Fox and you've got CNN and you've got the New York Times and NPR and they're all talking in their mm. their their own little world sometimes. Oh yeah, there's uh, yes, I, I would definitely I definitely agree with that 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 the the way that the the argument can be framed um, is that you can watch Fox News they frame it this way, you can watch MSNBC they frame it this way, and from my perspective the the topic hasn't even been addressed. Like we've, yeah. we've, we're just, we're arguing against arguing, you know, that's yeah. all, that's all we're, that's all we're doing here. Yeah. Um, okay. But let's, let's, let's go back to the, to the book here. Uh, you did, you say, you know, you do spend some time with the, with the, the New Testament church and acts, the epistles. Yes. Um, let, let's talk about that because the point about um, the early church selling all their stuff, um, you know, and, and giving it up is very much a socialist. Having in common. Yeah. 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 Having it in common. What would you say to that? Well, uh, let, let me quote Churchill. I came uh, in researching this. I came upon this brilliant quote. He just really puts it very well. Uh, and this, by the way, was in 1908 when mm-hmm. Churchill's career is just beginning. He said, um, the socialism of the first century Christians said, all that I have is yours. Modern socialism says all that you have is mine. And I think that underscores the different in mental- difference in mentality. The early church inspired people to give uh, what they had and didn't coerce them, didn't demand it. 
of them. Just inspired people to do that. And that one passage from the Acts of the Apostles said that says they had all things common is read very often, certainly by uh, Marx and Engels, is read in isolation from a later verse, I think it's the 15th chapter of Acts, where it describes two people, a husband and a wife, who in fact sell their property, give part of it to the apostles, saying that they've given it all, and Peter very clearly says to them, look, when you had that property, was it not your own? And after you sold it, weren't the proceeds still your own? But now you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Mm. So the condemnation wasn't that they didn't give uh, the, the whole amount, but that they lied. And that shows you the voluntary nature. And I think that places it on a much higher moral level to, to, um, to share your wealth rather than to have it taxed away and given to bureaucrats to redistribute. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. One of the things that I've been critical of um, the modern conservative movement, um, which I no longer really identify with because I don't find them conserving much of anything, is the modern conservatives don't have what I would argue is a hierarchy of morality, right? What is most important? And so when you go into these parables, uh, you're thinking about the economics, you're actually arguing there's a hierarchy of morality at play here. As you just said, um, it's better for you to do it than it's better to give it to a bureaucrat to him do it. Well, that's a that's a that's a you're, you're ranking that 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 humans um, uh, citizens are uh, it's more moral for them to distribute their money than it is for the government. How do we go about determining reading these stories, thinking through it? What is the hierarchy of morality like? How what is most important? What is the highest value? Because someone can say, listen. Yeah, maybe I'm better. I can distribute it faster or whatever. But, you know, the bureaucrat is going to know about, you know, person over here in downtown who needs the money. So how, how is it uh, from a, the hierarchy of morality? Why is it better for me to be in charge of the money than the bureaucrat? Well, I, if you step back and, and look at the whole of Jesus ministry and the whole of the, uh, the early church, it was very personal. It was very one-on-one -on -one intimate relationships which which means knowledge of people's real needs not just the needs that they think they have but the needs that you perceive that they have i mean jesus does this with the rich man uh who comes and says well i want to follow you what what else must i do and he says interestingly enough he, he doesn't say go and give away everything he first says go and sell what you have. He calls him to commerce first, and then he says, give it away, and then come and be my disciple. So I would say that to determine the the morality of things, and, and this isn't an exhaustive explanation sure. of morality, of course, but it's to do it on the most local level, the most proximate level where you have a personal engagement, because what happens on that level, first of all, is the knowledge that you, you you know but also it becomes reciprocal your sharing with someone else also enriches you mm. and this bonding marvin olasky wrote a book years and years ago called the tragedy of american compassion in which he underscores the importance of human bonding that's what transforms lives and societies well we could get into a whole discussion about trinitarianism and how it's tied up to that Sure, sure. <laughs> the inner life of the Trinity itself, yeah, yeah, and how that, what, how that plays itself out, and uh, 
in these relationships and then yes. how those that, that bonds uh, is built. Okay. All right. Um, we're going to link to the book here, obviously on Amazon. Anywhere else that you want us to send people to? or uh, We'd love them to visit the Acton Institute website. I co-founded the Acton Institute 30-something um, years ago with my friend, who is now the president of the Institute, Chris Maurer. And uh, you find a whole library of material that goes well beyond the parables, uh, dealing with poverty, dealing with politics, dealing with the hierarchy of uh, political and social organization. Uh, it's a very rich experience that brings together uh, Christians of all denominations, uh, including uh, people who are outside of Christianity, uh, Jews and Muslims and uh, even unbelievers who want to be rational, who want to think morally uh, about how the free society. So that's acton.org is the website. A whole bunch of academic stuff and popular stuff and films and books and articles and meetings, conferences. Um, I think you'd find it very interesting. Yep, I have it pulled up right here. I will link to that in the show notes for the listeners. And so we'll link to that in the book. Um, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion. And uh, any new book projects you're working on that you can tell us about? Or I'm, I'm doing a collection of essays. And then eventually, uh, as I age, I'm reflecting on my life and I will eventually uh, write an autobiography of my own um, journey. I was away from my faith in my 20s, was involved in the left, had a reconversion to the faith, then went to seminary and then began the Acton Institute. And now I'm sitting talking with you. <laughs> well, I don't know where you went wrong in life if you're talking to me. So <laughs> oh, uh, it's anyway. enough to fill a book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed thank the discussion. You. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.